apologies. I'm Andrea Mitchell from NBC News and host of uh, my report every day on MSNBC at 1 o'clock or 11 o'clock out here. And we're going to be doing it right from Door Hosier starting tomorrow. So Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we're going to be doing our programs here. I hope all of you will come and be part of our panels. Uh, my first apology is because I just got back from Baghdad this morning and have not yet. Uh, we had a slight delay. I was traveling with Joe Biden and we were supposed to get back around midnight, but in fact, there was a breakdown of the military jet at Baghdad Airport in a slightly, a um, <laughs> little bit of a problem. Um, if I could just, if you'll indulge me a moment just to tell you the story, it's such a, such a great story. The Bidens were saying goodbye to General Odierno and Ambassador Hill after a pretty exhausting uh, effort to try to bring the political factions together and also celebrate July 4th with the troops. And as they said their farewells and boarded the C-17, the big cargo plane, and we started up the step to board as well, um, Joe Biden and Jill Biden came running down the steps. And the vice president said, they say there's a fire, we have to evacuate. <laughs> a fire on a plane, of, or any plane, but a plane like that, uh, would be obviously a, a really scary thing. And Jill Biden, which shows so much about her, she grabbed me. Instead of running, everyone was running as far from the plane as they could get. She grabbed me and said, come, we have to get to safety, and put her arm around me and sort of started taking me away. This is a woman, by the way, who has not been in politics until two years ago, has always been in Wilmington, Delaware, teaching. And there, there, was, there were just many mo revealing moments about the vice president and Jill Biden and the impact that they had in Iraq over the last couple of days. So I can talk more about that. But that is why we got in at 4 o'clock this morning and I flew out here at 9 o'clock this morning. And so... Um, my apologies. But with that, Charlene Hundergold has probably come the farthest, uh, maybe not in the last few days, but uh, has been living in South Africa as well as in the United States and has a great sensibility of the African attitude towards American policy. Steve Clemens uh, knows everything, and of course from the New America Foundation, and is one of the great analysts. Uh, Elizabeth Blumiller covers military affairs for the New York Times, but in the past has covered the White House and the State Department and everything else, and um, written wonderful, wonderful book on uh, India as well, the women of India, and um, has lived in Japan on assignment and in India, and uh, has a worldview to share tonight. Mort Zuckerman, what can we say about Mort Zuckerman? <laughs> Um, that he hasn't said about himself. Mort Zuckerman <laughs> is a preeminent publisher, analyst, business figure, investor, uh, real estate magnate, um, policy expert, friend. Caddy Kay of BBC America is a great colleague and friend and analyst who covers politics here and everywhere and anchors, of course, her wonderful program every night. And Jim Fallows, I first met in the Carter White House and has been uh, living in China and writing brilliantly and um, 
knows more about Asia than anybody here, I suspect. So we have a great perspective, and we don't want to be very formal about it. The, the notion of the world viewing us, for us to be presumptuous enough to say how does the world view us is, first of all, a leap. So I would like to also, especially on a day when Bibi Netanyahu was in the White House and this time was in the Oval Office, not um, sitting in the Roosevelt Room wondering where the President of the United States was. Um, this was, as someone smarter than I said earlier today, was the meeting that um, had to succeed. You know, this, this was the designated makeup session. And it was in the interest of both sides to get off of the precipice. Uh, but whether or not, from a policy, co policy context, they are actually coming closer together is another very big and uh, troubling question, I think, from all sides. Um, Caddy, perhaps it's wiser for me to turn it to you on the subject of how we are seen from abroad since you have roots um, in so many countries. Actually, I realize that Morton and I are the only foreigners yeah, so we'll do the, the foreign... That's right. Born um, in Canada, he can't become president. <laughs> Which is probably the only reason why he hasn't become president. <laughs> Otherwise, he when, would add it when, surely to his long when list of countries. this country is ready to have an appointed Canadian-born Jewish president, I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot yeah. to ask everyone to turn off Blackberries and iPhones. Um, I think, actually, you know, uh, the United States of America is one of the few countries... <laughs> in the world, of which it is legitimate, probably, to ask the question, how does the world uh, see this country? Because so many people do have opinions about America. I've lived all my life abroad. I grew up in the Middle East. Um, I've lived in Europe. I've lived in Africa, and I've lived in Japan. And I've lived in a lot of countries that people don't have an opinion about, but all of those countries have very strong opinions about this country. Um, and what happens in Washington, as we have all found uh, around the world matters to all of us. Uh, it, it's n by no coincidence that the BBC has a huge uh, presence of foreign language reporters in Washington. We have Portuguese speakers from Brazil, we have Arabic speakers, we have Urdu speakers, we have Farsi speakers and French-German uh, Spanish speakers. And we have these people in our Washington bureau because what happens in Washington affects their listeners in their countries um, as is true of no other country in the world. Um, you know, we have found that when, it, just in the last decade, that if America makes a decision about invading another country, uh, albeit with a coalition of the willing, then that affects our troops back at our homes as well. So I think it is legitimate, and I think there has been a sea change in the way the world sees America just in the last couple of years. I mean, it's no secret to any of you that America went through a slump in terms of world opinion under the presidency of George Bush, that there was this alarming rise in anti-American sentiment around the world, alarming for somebody who believes in international relations, um, and that 99.9% .9 of Parisians would have voted for Barack Obama um, had they been given a Paris primary, which they all felt they widely deserved. <laughs> uh, it's sort of in vogue now to think that Obama's, at least the public perception of Obama around the world, has diminished as it has here in America. But actually, I was trolling through the latest global surveys that have been done on America just this afternoon, and they all seem to show that he is still very popular around the world 
uh, with the exception of some Middle Eastern countries, but certainly in Europe and in Asia he's still popular, um, and that perceptions of America as a country, not just of, Ob- of, of President Obama, are changing as well. So that's the kind of global picture. I think it is legitimate to ask how the world sees America, and I would say that the world views America more favorably at the moment than it did two years ago. Whether that translates into concrete policy changes that help America's national security, I think the jury is much more out on that. More today, the U.S. and Israel tried to repair a very damaged relationship. Um, I, was in, I was sent over when the flotilla incident happened to report on the trouble in Gaza. And there was so much antipathy to this administration in Israel, but also bewilderment because the policy seems to have zigged and zagged and then zigged again. And I think uh, when I talk to Arab leaders, they are as confused as the Israelis are because they're not sure which signal to respond to. What's your assessment of the way that part of the world is looking at us, but also the way the policy has evolved? Well, I think uh, you are correct. I think both on the Israeli side and on the Arab side, there is a a serious loss of confidence in the role of the American administration, which has always been the key player in terms of uh, helping to advance uh, the so-called peace process. Um, And I think that uh, is a very serious impediment to it. And if I may say, I think in part it is due to the sense that this administration uh, did not know how to play the game in the Middle East. Uh, One of the uh, Arab leaders put it as follows. He said, there are always two chess games being played in the Middle East. One is on the surface of the table, and another one is below the table. The only one that really counts is the one that is below the table, and the Americans don't know how to play that game yet. Uh, And I think that has uh, demonstrated itself in the sense that there were various opportunities between the beginning of this administration and today for, shall we say, private conversations and private negotiations to commence. And on each occasion, uh, something that the United States did is what prevented these negotiations from taking place. So there is, by and large, I think, a sense uh, that uh, they are still learning Uh, how to play it. And a part of the reason for that um, uh, is, uh, I think, the people whom they have uh, working this particular street. Uh, It took them... The the most knowledgeable person uh, on the whole history of the Middle East negotiations and the one who has played the most effective role is uh, somebody by the name of Dennis Ross. And he was just brought into the administration at at an appropriate level, and still not at the appropriate level, in my judgment, um, well into the Uh, problems that they began to uh, estimate were taking place uh, in their efforts to broker a peace. Uh, And even now, what happens when you come in late, as he does, there are other people who have built up their bureaucratic stature, positions, power, and role. It takes a while for somebody else to break into that. Uh, So I think that there has been a real uh, problem in terms of uh, having clarity as to how they ought to go about playing a role that would enhance the possibility of an effective negotiation between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Uh, I hope that they're on their way to doing better in that regard, but the jury is still out on that, I would say. Of course, you could also argue that, from the Israeli side, that 
they were focused more on domestic politics and especially at the time of the vice president's visit took a turn that in the days before proximity talks were to start were negative. So I think there's a... Okay. What happened at that point, as you know, is that there was an announcement. It was the fourth stage of a seven-stage zoning process uh, in a part of Jerusalem called Ramat Shlomo, which was overwhelmingly Jewish, uh, 90% of it was Jewish. In every previous discussion of any settlement between Israel and the Palestinians, that was going to be a part of Jerusalem that would have stayed with Israel. So to, it, it was stupid of Israel, believe me, and I frankly, when I wrote about it, recommended that the minister be fired who, who uh, supervised this particular uh, part of the process. Uh, nevertheless, to turn that into what it was turned into, um, I think was a mistake because it uh, both elevated the expectations of the Palestinians and diminished the expectations of the Israelis, but whatever private conversations were going to take place came to a screeching halt at that point because everything was just too politically charged to be able to advance the dialogue. So again, I think that was... Uh, I, I, I was very closely uh, involved in that uh, in the sense that I was very closely spending quite a bit of time with the administration at the time. And it was, this was, in my judgment, it was not a strategy that made sense, not a tactic, not based on fact, not based on history, and very counterproductive. Uh, but there was just a great deal of emotion uh, that was prompting the administration to react the way it did. So, I, I, as I say, I think that there was, a, and still is, a, a steep learning curve that they're going to have to absorb before they can make progress in that part of the world. With two wars and uh, with the focus on Afghanistan and Iraq, but more on Afghanistan, I can tell you that there is a sense in Iraq uh, of concern about disengagement. There is almost a schizophrenia, depending on which faction you're talking to on which day. They want us out, and at the same time, they're afraid for us to leave. And this is complicating among other things, the negotiations. But Afghanistan is a little bit more clear-cut in terms of the direction we're going. And, Elizabeth, you, you live and breathe that every day. So. Well, I was, I was just there in May. Um, I was in um, Helmand, late April and early May. I was uh, with the Marines in Helmand Province. I was writing a, uh, stories about um, female Marines who were trying to engage with Afghan women, but if you embed with the female Marines, there's only five of them and there's 250 men, so that's, <laughs> that's the way it is. And, but what was really interesting to me about how they view us, the Afghans, I was in very remote parts of Helmand Province in the south, um, not too far from Marja where the fighting is still going on. I was in relatively stable areas, but that's all relative. But, you know, I cover a lot of the policy debate in Washington at the, at the Pentagon about um, uh, many things. And the, the, one of the big policy debates right now is this July 2011 deadline of, you know, of, you know uh, that the White House set, that the military was, was uh, agreed to it, but they did not suggest it by any means. And, and, and there's a lot of debate about whether that's really hurting our, our ability to function in Afghanistan. And I covered this at a higher level, but it was quite extraordinary for me to go into these. And I, when I say remote, you have no idea. I mean, I lived in India, and this was really remote. These villages in, in Afghanistan and these, 
these uh, women and men, these villagers, and to have the Marines go in and they were trying to talk to them about, uh, uh, please sign up, please, we need teachers for our, the school we're trying to build in, in your village, and uh, and we need we need help. Do you want to make some products so you could sell them at the bazaar and you could make some money? And I sat there in these in these um, in these mud floors and I listened to the interpreter to the them say to the Marines, "Why should we work with you? You're leaving in next summer, you know. And if we work with you, the Taliban just are just going to come and kill us." And it was a really frustrating thing. And the Marines, this is at the, at the you know infantry level. This is on the ground, and they come, they would come back to the base and they would say, "We've got a serious problem." We hate this deadline. Um, we can't get anything done. It, they just throw it back in our face. And one of the women was complaining about this to sort of this debriefing session that occurs in the in the bases after these missions. And the uh, one of the uh, the uh, men who'd been there a lot longer said to her, "You just tell them, you know, that's what somebody said. As far as we're concerned, we're here." And afterward, I said to her, "Do you know who actually that somebody is who said that?" And I said, "It was the President of the United States." These are this very young corporal. Um, and so I thought, this is, you know, they, the Marines at these, at this level aren't, um, you know, concerned about the overall policy. And, you know, you heard General Petraeus say last week during his confirmation hearing that there was a good thing about the deadline because it was going to light a fire under the Afghan government to get its act together and it, there needs to be a sense of urgency. But I can tell you that it's been, you know, rightly or wrongly, it's been interpreted by the Afghans as we're all checking out in, in next summer. And so, um, on the other hand, we've been there for nine years, and God knows you can't have an indefinite time period. But that's and the other thing I would just say about how the Afghans view us: the um, uh, uh, Hamid Karzai, the president of Afghanistan, is a is a problem for the United States, obviously, because of his um, unpredictable statements and behavior sometimes. But I mean, people say that he really feels like the U.S. will never leave, and so he doesn't feel any sense of urgency. That at least is what people close to him are saying. I asked that question of Biden in an interview on Monday, and he said, without the deadline, we would never light a fire under right. Hamid Karzai. Right. I mean, that is exactly the point that you just made. And I think and that's viewed at the, t- at the top commanders see that as necessary. Steve, you've covered all of this yeah. as well, if you want to jump in on whether you think whether you think that Karzai, even with this deadline, will ever step up to it, whether a central government is even possible in Afghanistan. Well, I tend to be a skeptic of whether a central government of the sort we've designed constitutionally is possible in Afghanistan. Um, I also think that we run the risk of uh, something we do too often in the American media, which is siloing off one problem from another. Um, I have great respect for Mort Zuckerman, we disagree a lot on the Israel case and the uh, uh, case with what just happened with Netanyahu, but what, what, when President Obama was running for office, he made a very compelling point arguing about the interconnectedness of all of these issues. And I think those, in, that interconnectedness is very profound today. There's a great um, unmissable global doubt about America's ability to achieve the things it says it's going to do. And Afghanistan is just one part of that, of that picture. In Afghanistan, you have a situation where, just to, just to put it in, in perspective, I, I would argue today that, that while President Obama essentially gave Bibi Netanyahu a gift and said, we've signed the toughest sanctions on Iran, now what are you going to do on the Israeli-Palestinian peace track, linking them directly, 
I would tell you that Iran looks at us in Afghanistan near a breaking point. And it said, why are we going to negotiate anything away with a country that looks unable to add anything onto its military plate? And, and so when you, when you look, being a superpower, to some degree, is a lot more about mystique than your ability to bomb someone. And our mystique as a superpower was punctured by showing limits in Iraq and I think Afghanistan, punctured economically by uh, sending toxic assets across the world, uh, punctured morally to some degree by Abu Ghraib. And in that, you have lots of players exploiting America's need to continue to be the force it always has been. I think Hamid Karzai is exploiting us. National Review is not my favorite publication, but very good analysts in National Review have argued, I think compellingly, that the Karzai clan essentially are extracting about a billion to two billion dollars a year out of, you know, American transfer payments into that country. Uh, we're spending a hundred billion dollars a year in Afghanistan now. That doesn't count Iraq in a country with 14 billion dollars of GDP. And so there's a, a there, there are scale issues here. You could buy and sell Afghanistan seven times over uh, for what we're spending on an annual basis. Uh, in this country. And so this screams out management problems. So I think Karzai, I think our former, just, just to conclude, our former ambassador under the Bush administration at the UN, Zalmay Khalilzad, had a brilliant piece in the Washington Post saying that Karzai does not count on us being there long. Karzai is negotiating at three levels. He's trying to survive any way he can. You know, he's trying to communicate to the Taliban, if you just take me, I'll give you anything. Stage two is you know, we can negotiate whether the Americans stay or leave. Or part three, a, a much more robust picture of the Constitution, of rights of women, uh, lots of other issues in there. And, and what Karzai is trying to do in a scale, depending on how he sees whether we will stay or leave, is figure out how he survives. That's what Karzai cares most about. And I think that is a negative assessment, essentially, the doubt about America's staying power, not only there, but regionally. And to those who would argue inside the administration that Afghanistan is critical because of Pakistan, you would say? I would say that it's a very complicated act. I was in uh, Doha recently and ran into, uh, I shouldn't say ran into, I had a weird experience where I had an encounter with the former Taliban foreign minister and the former Taliban ambassador to Pakistan. That sounds like a weird experience. They were hanging out with a lot of Pakistani generals. These Pakistani generals, with whom we're ostensibly allied, are funding and supporting the Taliban. So we are allied in one part of the equation, a nuclear-armed equation, which was this last week listed as the number 10 failed state in Foreign Policy Magazine's failed state index. Afghanistan is listed number 6. We are allied in trying to prop up a government that is essentially funding our enemy uh, what we don't call our enemy, the Al-Qaeda and affiliates. They're the affiliates. The affiliates are like 900 pounds. Al-Qaeda is much smaller in the equation. And that is the problem, is that we were in a... Uh, some of you may have been in the panel earlier. I really respect Greg Mortensen. I really respect the global justice community that wants to do good in Afghanistan. The problem is, ultimately, Pakistan looks at Afghanistan as their strategic depth to compete with India. And so you can do all sorts of great civil society building things, and you don't fundamentally change the fact that Pakistan and India's paranoia at each other requires them both to have places where they can gut punch each other. And unless you can undo that, which we're not going to do by Ju July 2011, then there's, 
with all due respect to the great people wanting to do things on the ground, and I do respect them, you're not going to be able to make it worth the $100 billion a year, nor the American men and women that are deployed there, many of whom are dying, uh, in that kind of equation. Well, it was the concept of approaching this regionally that motivated the administration to have Holbrook do Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. I mean, that was the whole rationale for that. Slash out India. Slash out India. India would not be part of that. But right. that, was, that was originally his mandate. Right. right. Jim Fallows? I will segue largely because of reasons of my own ignorance from the Af, uh, Afghanistan-Pakistan uh, conundrum to uh, – but also for a somewhat change in tone because in this context and this context only, I'll have a somewhat more positive I, – I can be the relative optimist here – um, it was four years ago after the uh, Ideas Festival in, in uh, 2006. Uh, my wife and I moved to China and have been there much of the time uh, since then, including just a couple weeks ago. And I would argue from, from the Asian perspective, there is somewhat less of an emergency than we're seeing in other places. Now, of course, there, there are huge differences country by country. Steve Clemens and I were just in Japan a couple weeks ago where there's a really uh, difficult situation with the bases, of course. In Australia, they just had a, the leading public opinion poll in Australia found that Aussies feel 55% of all Australians, when asked to name the leading economy in the world, chose China. Now, China, you can say this reflects on the Australian educational system, although the figure in the U.S. is 44% of the same thing. But China, of course, which only recently is passing Japan in economic scale with uh, 10 times as many people. Uh, so so there, there are different circumstances all the way around. I'd say in China, which is probably the single most consequential country to deal with over the next uh, decade or two, it's a mixed but not totally negative perspective, which I would, would, would uh, present this way. Um, first, in China, there was weirdly more fondness for the Bush era than almost any other place in Earth, on Earth, except maybe uh, Poland and, uh, and a few other places we, we can think of. India, uh, Albania. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, I tried to get my editors to believe that. They didn't believe me. I the the said, alliance no. of, of, of the Bushites, <laughs> it could be. So they were sort of more cautious about the whole Obama uh, coming than, than many other parts of the, of the world. And we were living in Beijing during the run-up to the elections, and it was amazing how many high-level educated Chinese officials would have outright sort of racist comments about Obama. How can you have this kind of person uh, running your country? So there's been an adjustment that way where I think they have come along to think that this is a sign of some sort of, of strength for the U.S., Interestingly, an important weapon in the good sense for the U.S. and the administration is the ambassador, John Huntsman. You know, of course, a rising Republican moderate from Utah who rides his bicycle through hutongs in Beijing, speaks uh, Mandarin to people there, shows off his Chinese adopted daughter, and has been a very effective uh, ambassador for, 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 for the U.S. So th there, there has been – there was this sort of uh, – question about the shift to, to Obama. When the economic downturn hit, there was – there was more personalized rage in China than many places. Number one, because it was people, they were losing their jobs directly. The factors, factories in southern China, they had been selling to the U.S. and they weren't anymore. And there was a very, very widespread tone in the Chinese press of our savings that we've sort of milked out of our, our pathetic uh, uh, villages, that's what is being blown on Wall Street. And so there was a real sort of personalized rage and sense of discrediting of, of, of the U.S. model. I think that is somewhat recovering now. Probably the most important dynamic going on in China is their own sense of are they succeeding or not? How prideful should they be? There's lots of reports from U.S. diplomats and business people about real hubris and arrogance and uh, overbearingness by Chinese officials over the last year or so. 
at the same time, at the working level, I just was, was in some factories a month ago where there just is very sort of practical, detailed uh, uh, cooperation, a very, very surprising penetration of U.S. companies, U.S. officialdom in, 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 the, in the fabric of Chinese society, which leads me to the main positive, this, yeah, I promised a positive part, positive buffering point, which is it is striking to me in traveling through all the provinces of China, the extent of the human connections between the U.S. and China. Um, churches that have over the years set up schools, uh, people who have been educated in the U.S., just the network of these thousands and hundreds of thousands of, of ties. And I think that's probably the most important buffer. Uh, one other element I, I will add. This is a, my, my, my final point. We know from cognitive psychology that recognition of facial features is limited to one race. To people from Africa, all Chinese people look the same. To people from China, all African people look the same. To everybody in China, I was George W. Bush. And so <laughs> I, I, I had an opportunity to talk about the administration in personal terms. Well, Mr. President, you know, now that you're out of office, how do you feel about this or that? So I felt as if I had a particular bonding with, with the Chinese people in this way, and I heard some of their feelings, and there was a sense of of disappointment and, and doubt, but I think it, it, there's, a more, there's more webbing there holding them together than we would think. A disappointment that you weren't. Well, I, I had more time to sit in the taxi and chat with them. <laughs> Just don't go to France. Yes. <laughs> and you do a good George Obama, W. Bush. President Obama was not that well treated in China. He was not that well treated while he was there. And, and I, so, so I think that you know, there was a lot of coverage when he was there about this was a humiliation, but most of the stuff he was playing for has finally turned out. They did move on the RMB at the last moment. On both North Korea and Iran, they're doing something versus nothing. And so I think in the long game, that was a success rather than a failure for the U.S. Although we don't know what they've done on the RMB. It's very but, ambiguous. But the crucial thing was saying they would do, do anything, let it move at all, because there was until like uh, right. a week before they, they moved, they were, there was the idea to do nothing. Uh, Charlene, George W. Bush was very popular, in, if we can speak of Africa at large, which is really an overgeneralization, but he was the first person to take the HIV issue seriously and to pour money in and it was a very popular program, still is. Yeah, they were, they were very um, positive about Bush in that regard, although there were many of the more progressive organizations in Africa that were concerned about the conditionalities of the PEPFAR. That was the program um, because the emphasis was, it was ABC, abstinence, be faithful, and then, con- well, I just recently used the term condomized and everybody in America said, what do, what do you mean by that? In South Africa, condomized means using a condom. Uh, (laughs) And so the emphasis always was on the abstinence and be faithful and not so much on the condomizing. And there was a real religious aspect to it, uh, which was taken up in Uganda, uh, which had made tremendous progress uh, on uh, HIV and AIDS until this program came in. And the president's wife, who was very religious, was absolutely opposed to condom use. And so maybe that's not the only reason, but um, as she began to campaign against uh, condoms, the 
AIDS uh, uh, incidents began to rise again in a country that had one of the most amazing records of keeping AIDS um, uh, down. Um, but he does get the credit for it. Now, uh, when Patty spoke about sea change, it was so funny because I had one of those nini nana moments because I was writing sea change to talk about the difference now between um, the perceptions in Africa of U.S. Uh, foreign policy and in the, in the years when um, the Iraq war was being prosecuted by the United States and Bush was running for the second term, um, I was in South Africa in Johannesburg and I went downtown to talk to the people, uh, <laughs> the man on the street, and I found this woman, a market woman, and one of the things that was um, fascinating about her was that she was this a very large woman and she had on her head a huge basket, uh, which she just sort of walked around like she had a bobby pin in the top of her head. And I thought, now she'd be an interesting person to talk to. So I went up to her and I said, listen, I'm doing a story about American perceptions, uh, Af South African perceptions of the U.S. election and George Bush. And she said, no English, no English. And somebody told me this woman could speak English because she totally understood. So I, I tried two or three times to say, yeah, but I just really want to know. And she kept saying, no English, no English. So I said, but my, my friend here uh, speaks Zulu. And so he spoke in Zulu and told her what I had just said. And she continued to say, no English, no English. And so I said, well, how about Iraq? What do you think about George Bush's policy in Iraq. Now, she still says she can't speak English. I said Iraq, and she said, Iraq, Iraq, what are they doing in Iraq? What did Saddam Hussein ever do to George Bush? <laughs> and she went on in English for the next five minutes. And that really represented a sea change in terms of how people felt about um, U.S. policy. And then, of course, when Barack Obama uh, became president, it was as if one of them had become president, and of course, you know, he is um, a part Kenyan. And so there was great um, excitement, uh, anticipation uh, about Obama and how he would relate to Africa and how he would improve upon uh, the policies of the Bush administration, particularly in the area of AIDS, uh, you know, more money they wanted. Uh, and then Obama came to Ghana, where he made his first uh, major address on the continent. And that, of course, excited people as well. He laid out five things that um, was, were going to be the pillars of American policy towards, um, towards Africa. And they included things that the people the people, as opposed to the leadership, really want to see, and one of them is democratization. Uh, and and, and America, uh, America was going to support uh, democratization. Uh, America was going to take a stand against corruption. America was going to liberalize its trade policies vis-a-vis uh, -vis Africa, and uh, two or three other things like that. And, and these were things that people really wanted to hear, and they were really excited. I think at this point, um, there's still a lot of excitement about Obama's presidency. Uh, you, you rarely hear people being critical of him or U.S. policy. But I think that there's beginning to be a little bit of concern that there's been a lot of talk, but not a lot of action so far. Um, there are some very... Uh, 
strong disagreements in some of the some of the areas like Zimbabwe, for example, uh, South Africa, which has changed. There's been a sea change in policy between the, the U.S. and South Africa. It, it, it got a little dicey toward the end of the Mbeki administration for a variety of reasons. Um, and now there's been a new uh, uh, bilateral uh, uh, relationship established between the United States and South Africa. So that's very positive. But the things that are negative have to do with America insisting on maintaining sanctions on Zimbabwe, which I think is the right approach. And South Africa wants those sanctions lifted because they feel that this would help uh, move Mugabe uh, in a more positive direction. Uh, so there are those, those kind of small things that, um, that get in the way of the, poli of, of, of the relationship. But, but they haven't ruptured anything. And again, there's this great anticipation about what uh, America is going to do for Africa. It just hasn't happened yet. And when Fallows was talking about China, the thing about, um, you know, there used to be, in the old days, there was the Cold War, and there was the U.S., and there was the Soviet Union. And so those were the two competing for the African space. Today, the, there's so many more players, but the biggest elephant in the room, and not so much an elephant anymore, is the panda it's China, and China is in Africa, is all over Africa. It's building roads, it's building bridges, it's doing all the things that Africans need and can't do for themselves, and without any preconditions. They don't really care what you do with your people. They don't really care about human rights because, well, look at what's happening in China. So they can't very well call any of the Africans out for abusing human rights because of their own... Um, record in that regard, but it's making it very difficult for America to put any conditions on their own aid because they can say, I mean, look at Zimbabwe. One of the reasons that Mugabe can continue to thumb his nose at everybody is because the Chinese are doing everything in, in, in Zimbabwe, including helping out their military. Even South Africa is a little bit concerned because they've been helping uh, to, to, to uh, increase and expand their air force. So South Africa has to walk a little bit gingerly uh, on, on the whole question of, uh, of Zimbabwe as they, as they continue to do much to America's dismay. The other thing that I think is very important for Africans that, that America has not yet done is to condemn some of the more egregious uh, cases of human rights violations. For example, the right rapes and the, the, the heinous things that, they, that, that the people in Eastern Congo are doing, um, especially to the women. Um, you know, some in some cases, they don't want military intervention or something like that. They just want people to, America to acknowledge that this is something terrible, and if you stand for human rights, then speak out against these kinds of atrocities, and that hasn't happened yet. Um, Hillary Clinton's travels through uh, the continent have been good in terms of raising expectations, particularly as it relates to African women. But again, you know, the proof of the pudding, as my Chicago husband would say, uh, is in the eating. Uh, and so far, they, uh, you know, they're waiting for America to eat, put its money where it's, where it's beautiful, actually, words were in Ghana. In fact, in fact uh, I was with Hillary on that trip in Africa, the most recent trip, I guess, in Africa. And... She has a presence. I mean, we can talk about 
whether she has put her imprint on Afghanistan, Pakistan, well, some in Pakistan, but uh, certainly the Middle East has been fairly absent of real hands-on management. But when she comes to places like Indonesia or Kenya, she is greeted as a visiting head of state. She has the aura and the connection and does women's events at every stop. So that part of public diplomacy is, is really, I think, very effective. But whether or not she's having an imprint in the more um, critical, one could argue, um, hot spots, which are really being managed out of the White House, is another question. More, you had... Uh, I don't know if this is working, but uh, let me just, we just hear talk you. about some of the Arab countries uh, that uh, I think do have a very uh, real concern. Uh, Egypt, for example, uh, which was uh, the target of a Hezbollah terrorist cell, as you may recall, in which they were going to blow up a ship going through the Suez Canal and blow up some of the major tourist sites because of the oil revenues or the uh, revenues of the canal and the tourist revenues were the two major hard currency sources, and they were uh, trying to destabilize the Egyptian government. And I was in Egypt uh, shortly afterwards. Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, not only sort of acknowledged it, but basically called upon the Egyptian army to rise up against uh, the Mubarak uh, regime. And uh, their view was uh, that this, uh, they see uh, Hezbollah and Hamas basically as wholly owned subsidiaries of Iran, and for them, the major threat, and the major threat to a lot of the Arab countries, is Iran. And uh, one of the three top leaders of the Egyptian government uh, put it parodying the uh, president's statement that he would shake hands uh, with anybody who extended a, a handshake and uh, not if it was a clenched fist. And he said, but you can't deal with Iran this way. You can only deal with Iran uh, with a clenched fist. And I think a lot of the Arab countries, the UAE, uh, the Gulf countries, really feel that they are under great threat from Iran in one form or another. And uh, Iran recently... Uh, uh, issued a, a perfect statement in which he said, don't think that there is a lion on the other side of the waters that is going to protect you. They, are, they, are, they have weakened themselves in Iraq and Afghanistan and every other place. We are the lion who's going to survive here. And that kind of threat from Iran is pervasive, uh, particularly in the Sunni parts of uh, the Arab world. And that, I think, is something that really does raise anxiety about the nature of America's role um, and their willingness to confront Iran in the way that they think Iran ought to be confronted. But for them, Iran is really the major well, more, threat, me, and they still don't think we have come to terms with it. Let me just say, I don't know who was at that session where Yusef Otaiba, the um, ambassador from UAE, was being interviewed by Jeff Goldberg today, but it was stunning. Um, Caddy, I don't know if you heard the comments, but what, what Otaiba said was what U.S. officials have been saying, Arab leaders have been telling them privately for years. Condi Rice kept telling us that this was what the Gulf leaders were telling her. He said in public, and I think it's the first time I've ever heard a Gulf leader, an Arab leader, say this. He said, when asked by Jeff, um, do you want the United States to stop Iran from having a nuclear program by force? He said, absolutely, Absolutely. He said, we are far more threatened by 
an Iranian nuclear program than you are because we are, in fact, the most threatened given our location. And he said, frankly, um, our country and the other countries in our region are waiting to hear the answer from you as to whether you are willing or not to do it. What is the red line? And then he added, because if we don't get an assurance from you that you are willing, you, the United States, are willing to confront Iran, then you will see the countries of my region running for cover toward Iran. Is that a... Well, you'll either have them running for cover towards Iran or you're going to set off the most extraordinary arms race that the Middle East has ever seen. And the the speculation is that the UAE will be one of the first areas of the Middle East to join up for trying to get its own nuclear weapon. And clearly, you know, the whole Sunni belt there is very nervous about um, Iran, which is, of course, Shia. I mean, I think to some extent, Egypt is an interesting case with its elections coming up at the moment. And there's some self-servingness in the Egyptian government at the moment of painting Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood and the Hezbollah's influence on the Muslim Brotherhood as the primary threat to the country because they would then like to say, listen, you know, better the devil you know than the devil you don't know. So, I mean, in some of these Arab countries, there is a a, a usefulness in uh, not hyping the Iranian threat because it's clearly a very real threat, but, you know, they are right in Iran's backyard. This is the, the big Shia power in the country, and, and for decades, the 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 battle in that area of the world has been between these two sections. I was in the, the UAE in March with the Defense Secretary Robert Gates, and he one of his messages on that trip was to reassure the Arab world that we are trying to deal with Iran, the U.S. is trying to deal, and there was also, uh, I believe the, the UAE has two Patriot missile batteries now uh, on its soil to protect well, itself regionally. Well, and we so, should point out that the administration... One of the most effective things that it has done, it has, not, it has failed in the engagement strategy towards Iran, but I think it would have been wide, widely criticized had it not attempted that. And that engagement strategy, which was announced in the inaugural address, um, has at least united the world, really, against Iran. The European, the EU sanctions that have come on the heels of the... Security Council watered-down sanctions, but then followed by the unilateral U.S. sanctions, do create, Steve, I think, a package that is likely to be well, effective. We don't know if it will change the calculations of Iran. It shows that the United States can still rally other parts of the world, and this is useful. Uh, to, but to be fair to Yusuf Otaiba, he also made a very compelling point that said that the real step that needs to be taken in the Middle East is that Israel needs to be get, much, get much more serious about the uh, Israeli-Palestinian crisis. And that has to be put right up next to its comment about Iran. It would, it's a disservice to him. He'll probably get fired if you don't remind him the other. But the, you but know, that's the, the, the security message, relationship with Steve, Israel... What's that, that? that is a message. The message yeah. about the Israeli-Palestinian well, track no, but is it's, a consistent message. But it's message. important. It's a question of whether you look at this a moment of historical discontinuity or whether you have continuity. I think Mort sees continuity when he, when he identified this as a game in the region that continues to be played. I look at this as a moment of discontinuity, where U.S. security relation with Israel is sort of like a New Orleans levy. It's there, it's strong, it's working, but it's not getting better. And essentially the security relationship that we have in the region, our interests in the region, have to be revisioned and rewired. And, and to some degree, that requires Arab states in the region becoming loosely federated with Israeli interests, sort of an ASEAN regional forum, if you will, in the Middle East. And the only way that can happen is if there's a credible two-state process that's begun. If that is not begun, then you preclude that, 
And then you put the Mubaraks, you put any head of state in an Arab regime at risk with their own street, given what they do in these conflicts. So that's the dilemma that we're in. We've been in it for a long time. I was going to say that both kings, Abdullah, right. most significantly the Saudi king, Jordan Abdullah, have been saying it forever. Right. But the problem with this is King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia told Barack Obama, do not proceed on the settlements issue with Israel because Israel will embarrass you. And Barack Obama didn't listen. We tried, my organization tried to say don't do it because while I'm opposed to the expansion of Israeli settlements, I thought it was a very immature way to begin going about this process and restricted it. The problem is our ally, Benjamin Netanyahu, essentially became the Khrushchev for this administration. There's no leader in the world that demonstrated the weaknesses of this administration more than Bibi Netanyahu. And that weakness has had tremendous impact. We're discussing Israeli-Arab relations today, not just because of the Israeli and Palestinians, but because the echo effect of what's happening there is so enormous. Every time I hear George Mitchell talk about Northern Ireland, I want to get sick. Northern Ireland was not a global fault line that really mattered. in terms. It could have raged for another 300 years, with all due respect to people involved in that issue. This is a global fault line. It's the San Andreas fault of global issues that has enormous consequences for the United States and how it achieves security because the costs of failure in the Israeli-Palestinian track can no longer be sustained where you could afford to fail before. But during the Gaza flotilla week, right. and we, it has not all played out because we haven't discussed Turkey, but Turkey obviously burned by its EU experience, reaching in the other direction. And there's a sense that I have in covering this administration that they are reactive rather than proactive. There was genuine surprise in the White House at Turkey's response. This was not an intelligence failure in the sense of intelligence. This was an intelligence failure in the sense of (laughs) brain power because every signal was sent as to what Turkey was doing and what Turkey would do. And then the Israelis, of course, took a military action that was bound to blow up in their face and, and create huge problems internationally for them. But Netanyahu has brilliantly created this mini-cabinet of seven who are in on every decision. So he is not, he's criticized in the columns. He's criticized domestically, but he's not criticized where it counts politically. And when I was questioning people in his administration on the ground there that week... And they said, yes, we're, we're being vilified around the world, but look at our polls. I was getting the response that I would get if I were covering politics in New York or Chicago in covering Netanyahu's administration. Tim? I want to say something on the Iran front. Again, this is a perspective of somebody who is not a regional expert, but from looking at the process of the U.S. making decisions of, of, of this, this sort. And I have a, a minor point and then the larger point. The minor point is, uh, Steve was saying we heard the interview with the ambassador uh, earlier today of the need to have assurances from the U.S. one way or another. This is, to me, a classic illustration of something you are not explicit about. There are rules for ambiguity and letting people imagine whatever they want. So I think the U.S. Uh, government, this is not something we're going to be, the U.S. should be giving speeches one way or the other. The, the larger point to me is the ambassador said very tellingly that he thought military action against Iran would be a catastrophe. And the only worst catastrophe would be Iran getting a nuclear weapon. And so, you know, the first part of it needs to be emphasized too. And I think from the U.S. point of view, there's a very important element of timing, 
of, of, of knowing you know, if there is no alternative tomorrow but a greater catastrophe, then you choose a lesser catastrophe. But if it's not tomorrow, I mean, you, you take as much time as you can. We've had in recent history examples of pushing the deadline artificially, and so that, that was what I thought of when I heard it. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I think exactly right on the timing, because the most, I think the most accurate reflection of their timetable was Leon Panetta's interview on ABC two Sundays ago, where he really laid out the fact that they think there's a two-year timetable. They are not accepting the Israeli red lines or timelines, as a matter of fact. I want to open this up to the audience. I think uh, it would be good to have more of an exchange. And there are floating microphones, I think. Um, yes. The gentleman in the lovely pink shirt. Uh, I, I was at that lunch, and, and those were my questions. I, I, uh, Andre, I, I, I disagree with you. I don't think he said what you said. He, what I heard him say was that, because uh, Jeff asked him what's more important, suddenly uh, fixing Iran or the peace settlement. He said the peace settlement is much more important because if you get it the next day, every Arab country will recognize Israel. Uh, he also said if Iran goes nuclear the next day, Egypt, Turkey, Syria, and uh, one other country. I'm, I'm just saying that I've, I have never, in all of my visits to the Gulf, heard anyone publicly verbalize their willingness to support the use of force. No, I, th- I thought it was an extraordinary comment all around. So my question is, the first thing he said is the Green Revolution has been crushed in Ir- Iran is no more. i interest anybody has a thought on that. And secondly, if people agree that the issue first issue to deal with is Israel-Palestine, then, then Iran, or vice versa. I think one of the frustrations that a lot of us feel in watching the administration and watching the Mitchell process is exactly what Steve verbalized, is that there, to, to say that proximity talks are a success when it's not even face-to-face talks, which they think now they can move by the fall, is uh, w- w- granted this administration inherited a very difficult situation there. But um, I don't know if anyone on the panel... Proximity talks are counterproductive rather than productive because when you have proximity talks, each side is going to give their maximalist position to the interlocutor, whom they don't trust in general. They don't want to deal with it themselves. Everything that has happened in the, in the Israeli-Palestinian dispute has, that is positive has happened privately. Nobody ever heard of Oslo until it was announced. You could go through a whole series of those things and uh, frankly, uh, this is a, an illustration, in my judgment, of the lack of experience of the, this administration in that part of the world. Uh, and it's really, it's really paid a big price. I think the proximity talks by Mayor, I, I completely agree with Mort on this, are, are a sideshow and, 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 and somewhat of a disaster. Uh, in, and it's, they're, they're trying to make it look better. And it is, I, I think, a benchmark of the weakness of the administration of George Mitchell and of the players. But let me come to, to this Iran question. It's very important. In my David Frum, uh, again, someone I, 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 who's a friend, I, I, I've been there, but we often sort of see the world differently, but we agree to disagree. But he, he worries about Ahmadinejad's and the RGC's seeming uh, invitation to do something to us. And he said, you know, there's got to be something important. What I worry about is a uh, political situation in Iran that I don't understand deeply. I agree that Iran plays beyond its borders. It's a nefarious state. It uh, animates uh, terrorist networks, but it, it does not internally 
the, the folks running government do not have consolidated power positions. The elites in Iran do not trust each other. If you were to bomb Iran, if you were to create a certain thing, you have to look at the downside consequences. You have to look at all of the impacts that would happen. And my worry is you actually end up creating exactly what you're trying to undo uh, with certain attacks. United. Essentially uniting behind the worst, most reactionary, uh, awful parts of that regime and undermine every element. We came probably closer in the green movement than we ever had before in, in, in potential change. But what I do know, and, I, and I'll tell you how I know, I know during that election uh, turmoil, uh, Jim and I and others have, uh, Elizabeth, we know a lot of people around the world who work as diplomats. I know a lot of Iranian diplomats who worked in the Chinese embassy, the Japanese embassy, the Egyptian embassy, wherever they may be. These guys are back in Tehran. We're communicating with them. And, you know, until recently, they were all Ahmadinejad supporters. They were trying to explain to me Ahmadinejad, the RGC, why I was always reading, th- reading them wrong. Now that's not the case. Even today, beneath the surface, there is a resistance that's there, and I worry about undermining that, and that just needs to be put on the table. But I do think it's a big question mark. I think Iran is a, um, uh, a, a nefarious state. I don't think, in my view, that there is an easy-made solution. There is no silver bullet, not a bombing run. I don't believe Israel would ever make a bombing run. I, don't think, I think sanctions are a sideshow. And my one, my, to my friend Mort Zuckerman, my one confusion about Israel's behavior is with Israel looking at Iran as such an existential threat. While I understand why Israel is not a big deal in settlements, but if you have a choice between doing a deal with Palestine on something that you don't even have to negotiate everything but get credible on a two-state process so you can normalize with 57 states to basically create an environment, that certainly seems to me to be a much lesser cost. Especially, at any level, than, than worrying about an existential nuclear bomb threat from Iran. G- given the demographics of what, what is going to exist. And why won't... I mean, Jim Jones, I shouldn't quote him, but I will not quote him. Jim Jones and others have essentially implied, perhaps, that their <laughs> confusion is Israel's confusion between long-term security and short-term interests. And he said that, that in, you know, where Mort made the case that several times America did not bat right, the perspective of this White House was that there were several key times behind the scenes, not played out in public, where Israel did not step up to invest in its long-term interest and make the right move. And I know what those cases are, and I suspect that there's something to that. And I think that Bibi Netanyahu is the guy who can actually achieve these things. I have great respect. He, more than anyone else in Israel, has the credibility and the power to pull something off. I don't think anyone else in the Israeli establishment can. And thus far, they've made the calculation not. And I look at Israel as pretty much a client state of the United States. And when the client state of the United States is defining the terms of our situation, that has huge ramifications for China, for Iran, for North Korea, for all over the world, and how they see our ability to sculpt the global order. That's why this is not just about Israel-Palestine, not even just about Iran. It has enormous consequences, and we have to get it right. Let me, yes, ma'am, get a microphone here. You've done a very good job of talking about the complexities, frustrations, and disappointments of American foreign policy in a world in which, as was described, we no longer have the bilateralism of the Cold War and has not been noted, but obviously is true, we have crying needs of investment and resources in the United States. I'm curious what 
the members of the panel think is a wise foreign policy strategy for this country <laughs> in this century in terms of where we should be and what our goals should be and why. That is a very big job. Caddy? Yeah, I'll take take I want everyone shot. else to chime in on that. Um, look, you know, the world hates it. Uh, when America overextends itself, and the only thing we hate more is when America is isolationist. Um, and when that has happened, we've all come begging to you um, and said, please, can you intervene on our behalf and help sort us out? So um, a, a totally isolationist policy doesn't work for the rest of the world, and I don't think it works for American interests. It was, you know, it's been slightly alarming in the last... There's sort of, uh, some discussion in vogue at the moment that there should be some retrenchment in American foreign policy after the Bush administration that we shouldn't get so involved. But I don't see, in the, I don't see that there's very much choice in a globalized context. And so then the question is, how do you do it? And I think that there is still um, an issue of reaching out to one's allies and you know, talking to those who you can, but it has to serve American interests. And I think that's where the jury is still out on the Obama administration, whether it comes to Afghanistan and the failure of European countries to step up with more troops for Afghanistan, the Canadians, the Dutch, the Brits now all saying that they're going to um, pull back from Afghanistan, whether it comes to the economy and asking other countries uh, to carry on stimulating and actually getting other countries turning around and saying, no, we're not going to do that, whether it comes to China or Russia and Iranian sanctions. I mean, it's not clear yet whether the outreach program has got the dividends that America needs, but I, I don't think that there is a choice other than some form of engagement. Um, I I wrote a book about Condi Rice and uh, looked at American foreign policy. I think the classical foreign policy of the second half of the 20th century, the sort of centrist, internationalist foreign policy of George W., uh, George, first George Bush, uh, Barack Obama, uh, who, by the way, has, has, has said when he was a candidate, he admired the foreign policy of the first George Bush. I thought that was extraordinary. In fact, but in, if you look at his foreign policy, although he sounds very different than George, the last George Bush, there hasn't been that much of a change, certainly in Iraq or Afghanistan. There's some in the Middle East, but there's Guantanamo. We could go on and on. Um, and, but I think that would be the, that's a sort of a vague generalization, but I think that would be what I would, I'm not supposed to recommend things anyway. I'm a journalist, but uh, that seems safe enough. Yeah, right. I think there actually are two speeches which nicely paired lay out the constructive foreign policy. One of them is worth everyone's rereading tonight or tomorrow sometime. Dwight Eisenhower's farewell address, which is a phenomenal piece of rhetoric from January of 1961 when he left office. The other is Obama's latest uh, speech at West Point about a month ago, which tracked Eisenhower's address to an extraordinary degree and talked about the long-term uh, elements of American strength being economic robustness, investing in public infrastructure, um, soft power around the world, some kind of trusted network of alliances. And I think that, that, that uh, to the extent uh, um, Obama can channel Eisenhower, we can channel them both. And that's uh, uh, that's my policy. <laughs> real, real quick, there are four ways in which superpowers engage the world. Militarily, we've shown limits. I think we need to uh, decrease our footprint in places that are not delivering security. Afghanistan, I think Iran looks at that as us being a breaking point. I think Iran will be more motivated by doing that. Economically, America has got to show 
that it can be on the cutting edge of innovation and reinvention uh, and not allow China to leapfrog and to have essentially uh, a pass at being the one who invests and creates all the dynamism. China is the Google of countries today. We're looked at the General Motors. I can't tell you how sick I am of hearing about people talking about our 700 military bases, all of our capacity. We have all of this capacity. It's an assertion, which is true. But it is GM. With all of that bloated capacity, we're a well-branded, underperforming corporate asset. And we need... And Google... When Eric Schmidt, uh, a friend of Jim Fowles, the chairman of my board, when Eric became CEO of Google, Google was tiny, small, relatively small. And it was the promise of what it was going to be that gave it the consequential weight. That's China today. China is, cannot bail out the United States. China, on e- any economic level, military economic, is still a pipsqueak in many key so features. It's 100th in per regard. capita income in the world, but it's the promise of what it will look like in 20 years. So we need to capture that. Morally, I think that we either need to shut places like Guantanamo or alternatively, we need to recreate a social contract with the rest of the world. We, we end with the gray areas and come up. We need to become uh, the dynamic innovators in creating agreements with the other major stakeholders in the world about the way we're going to run things. And I think that, that part of that is recognizing, you know, we just had this bad skirmish with Brazil and Turkey. I think Brazil and Turkey went way over the line in creating a backdoor for Iran that they should never, ever have done. But the fact is Brazil and Turkey are reaching into a space because they see a void left by the uh, United they, States, which is not a defender. They, they did in a way. Because, well, the point no, is they, they didn't get away. The issue is, but you're looking at a micro moment. The point is there is a perception of absence of American leadership. They're trying to fill that. We need to work with other aspiring countries and work and say, how can they become responsible stewards, responsible stakeholders? Not engaging that. We're not really doing that. We are pretending we are, but fundamentally, we're not engaged in a serious reform of international institutions today. And if you did those things, American DNA and sort of showing it can sculpt the global order will be sustained and recreated in a new age. That will give us a recreated uh, edge in defining where the world goes. And, and that's, those are the things that I want us to do. What is your plan for closing Guantanamo? <laughs> well, no, I didn't say that we... I said we either need to close Guantanamo or we need to bring that gray area world into agreement with the rest of the world, which is also having but some of these problems. What does that mean? That means we need to negotiate... Look, in my view, Dick Cheney created a Kafkaesque gray area there, Everyone's been trying to close this. It is, it is a, a, a political problem. So what we need to do is essentially get back to negotiating, renegotiating Geneva and, and put, go to the forefront. Go to Europe, go to Japan, go to the other great stakeholders and work out a deal. They can't free ride in that. So either we need to make Guantanamo internationally palatable and acceptable or we need to do it because if we don't do that, then what we've lost is what we had during the Cold War. During the Cold War, America was the alternative where, I tell you, you don't know the political norms of a system unless you see it under stress. And Uh, under stress, we didn't operate well. Having covered Ronald Reagan in Europe when we were trying to deploy the intermediate-range missiles and faced the rioting at every NATO meeting, I'm not so sure that America was perceived that way initially in the Cold War. A lot of things had to evolve before the Europeans 
I don't think it's the absence of the American rule. It is the perception of the weakness of America that I think is the biggest problem we have. A major uh, Asian leader said in a private dinner in New York, and you would all know his name except I'm foreign to speak, he said, and I quote, he said, we are really concerned that America, that this administration does not have the strength to oppose its enemies, and we fear it does not have the will to support its friends. I mean, that kind of thing, and that, by the way, is pervasive all throughout the Middle East. There is a sense that this administration just isn't tough enough, that they do not know how to manage uh, American power. They think naivete in that part of the world is perceived as weakness, uh, and that is a big part of the problem. To get back to what Elizabeth was saying, the irony of that is that actually when it comes to drone attacks against al-Qaeda or more troops in Afghanistan or actions against terrorism around the world, this administration, or indefinite detentions and and assassinations in East Africa, this administration has been as tough as the Bush administration when it comes to dealing with those issues. The language has changed. I mean, you know, the fabulous irony of Barack Obama was going to, to pick up his Nobel Peace Prize and giving a speech which word for word could have been given by George Bush but was said in a different way. But I think, I mean, the, this, there is think, this myth developing around the that. world that, he's, that this administration is not tough is a bit of a myth. And I, I hear it too. This it's administration is not weakness. tough enough, that it's, it's political, political weak. But actually, when it comes to dealing with the, the key issue, which is terrorism, which is affecting national security, he, he, is, he has yeah. been absolutely yeah. as tough as Bush. Can I say I know Africa is always seen as somewhere over there, but I, I think that it's very important to point out how important it is for the United States to have good relationships with um, Africa, good for its foreign policy, uh, because it's in the national interest of America to be involved with Africa, because if you continue to have this rat fuck, excuse me, pardon me, I didn't say that. Um, If you continue to have this thing that you're having in, uh, in the Middle East, you're gonna have to have some alternatives Uh, for as long as we are a nation consuming oil, Africa is the the alternative to that. that. It is also important in the war on terror (laughs) because if you you are attempting to uh, figure out where the next uh, recruiting uh, stations are for terrorists, They are in these countries where people cannot afford to feed their families. If you look at Somalia, if you look at the people who are going from Wisconsin or wherever it was in the United States to train in Somalia to become terrorists. So although Africa is sort of seen as being over there and not a part of this larger discussion, it is a critical part of and should be seen as a critical part and what of of U.S. foreign policy and what the Africans want is what I think the rest of these countries want is a partnership. They want to be seen as partners as opposed to supplicants. And of course they have to prove themselves, but they want new, a new relationship with America that sees them as equals even as they need some of the things that America has to offer. In, in that context, is there concern that this administration has not been aggressively trying to do something about Sudan and Darfur? I think there is, yes. I mean, but you do have Gratian, who, who has taken uh, you know, a strong 
and different approach to uh, Darfur than, than the previous administration or even Susan Rice. Um, and so, but, you know, that hasn't played itself out yet. Um, do we have time for one more question? Yes. Let's wait for the mic. I'm sorry. Could you, could you start again? Thank you. I'm interested that Russia has not been mentioned this evening. Is Russia no longer an important country? <laughs> <laughs> Very good point. Well, we have restarted the relationship. We've hit the restart button. And Hillary Clinton just came back early this morning. It was a very busy morning at Andrews Air Force Base. Let me just clean one thing up for the record. There was no fire. There was a hydraulic leak. I, didn't, I neglected to point out the end of that story. There was no fire on the plane, but the plane was down, and we had to find another plane and all the rest. But uh, Netanyahu arrived this morning at Andrews around 5. Uh, Biden arrived around a quarter of 4. Hillary Clinton arrived around 2.45, and so the crews were just ferrying planes in and out at Andrews Air Force Base. But the, uh, the fact is that Clinton had just returned from her trip to the former Soviet states. And a complicated bit of business that was, um, declaring um, what she declared in Georgia and, um, again, sort of pushing back against Russia at the same time as we have been engaging in Russia. And you may have noticed that the president shared cheeseburgers with Medvedev at a little hamburger joint across the river um, in Virginia the other day, and only the very next day I ended up uh, facing uh, this crazy uh, anachronistic Cold War spy story with these Russian embeds, these illegals, who were basically living next door to people in Montclair, New Jersey, and Yonkers, and have been there for a decade, and have been tracked by the FBI for at least six or seven years. So, um, Russia... Jim Fallows, okay. Jim? Um, I, I will buy time before Steve says something about Russia with two one-sentence points I wanted to make, and this is my, my chance. One is not to minimize any of the problems we've discussed tonight at any time in my conscious life. If we were having a panel about how the world views the U.S., the conclusion would be the same. The world doesn't like X, Y, and Z, except probably September 12, 2001. That would probably be the one exception. But as you were saying, Andrew, there's always been concern about U.S. leadership. So the problems we're talking about are real, but they, they, it's, uh, it, it's in continuity. The other point I'd make, just to go back to, to Iran, here's my one sentence here. A crucial thing for the U.S. to bear in mind in its strategy here is whose side is time on? If you think time is on, well, they're just going to get a bomb next week, et cetera, et cetera, that's one thing. If you think time is on the side of their regime weakening, the correlation of forces favoring us, that's a whole different strategy you, you approach. So to me, the choice for us is whose side is time on? Uh, Russia, Steve. At that point, time is not on Russia's side. It's a shrinking nation that's losing tremendous amount of population every year. But it is uh, a key power, a fundamental power, uh, because it, along with China, are the two most important nations that can veto what America wants to achieve in the world. And we're not, um, there are constraints on American power, and I think I totally agree with Mort's, uh, Zuckerman's view that, that one of the big problems out there is the doubt about America's ability to achieve the things it says it's going to do. Uh, China has much more veto power over us than Russia, but Russia is substantial. But one of the interesting things is 
that I look at this as a Nixonian moment, that Barack Obama sort of faced with all sorts of constraints like Nixon was, and Nixon found the opening to China as a way to show he could change gravitational forces. I don't know what options really realistically are out there for Obama, but what he tried to do with Russia was he realized we were on a collision course with them over Georgia, over a lot of other issues, and in a very short period of time, got this back. Now, Mitt Romney's challenging this. He just wrote a major piece saying the START agreement, all the nuclear symmetry is really bad for the country. My view is the nuclear symmetry, the nuclear materials lockdown, uh, the nuclear review conference, the deal with this, uh, the Russians, are the first things that Barack Obama actually ever delivered on that he said he was going to do. And, and well, you accept health, I mean, internationally. And, and that was very, very important. Um, but it's, it's, it's not necessarily as what we could have done 20 years ago or 30 years ago when America had a much more disproportionate share of global power. But Russia matters, but it matters less and less. But getting us off a collision course in the near term, probably a good call given all the other problems uh, that we have on our plate right now. And one, one uh, other point that I would make is that when I talk to policy makers in this administration and ask them what really scares them in the middle of the night, it's Pakistan. It's certainly not Russia. And it's not even Iran. It's Pakistan. Because that is a nuclear state now. And there are a lot of things that we can try to do in the next year, two years, already are doing in terms of trying to um, internally sabotage the Iranian nuclear program, which has been slowed down by scientific failures, which were obviously, well, which I think were not um, of their own making. Can I say one thing about Russia? Russia nearly went bust last year. I mean, yeah. they, are, they were teetering on it. They know it, it and that really terrifies. Economically ter- so their the whole focus is going to be almost exclusively on the redevelopment of their economy. So uh, in that sense, the, just as our economic condition has weakened us, their economic condition dramatically weakened us and helped them focus almost exclusively on domestic well, we've, issues. We've sparked a lot of debate here in the panel and elsewhere. I don't know what our time frame is and whether we can take a few more questions. Ouch. Who are our minders? <laughs> we can keep going. Uh, those who have to leave? Yes, sir. Um, back there, and then we'll move. Then you next. Yes, uh, as probably one of the only person of Iranian origin in here, so much talked about Iran, I didn't want to not mention something. Uh, first of all, from what I remember, the U.S. policy, U.S. foreign policy has been uh, two major elements. One is short-sightedness. Secondly, self-interest. U.S. Uh, government... Uh, toppled the first uh, and most popular Iranian democratic regime in 1958. And nobody mentions that. Secondly, uh, on the the Green Revolution that took place uh, last year, none of the U.S., including uh, England and, uh, uh, you know, Western countries, never really helped in the right way uh, for that wonderful, um, you know, effort that Iranian uh, elite and well, students May did. I ask you a question? If the U.S. had done more, would that, ha- could, would that have backfired? Because that was the calculus that was being made. I think uh, not uh, openly, but um, I agree that uh, 
news was very important to come out of that country. U.S. could have made uh, possible for Iranians to send news, pictures, and all that when Iran took off the internet. They could have, with $50 million, they could have put a ship out in uh, Persian Gulf and uh, opened the internet and continue to open the internet to, uh, for that news to come out. Um, th there was a lot of this sort of help that they could have done, even Western countries, France, England, Germany, None of those countries, because they underneath, they deal with Iran economically, and they have very big economic interest in Iran, uh, oil and everything else, uh, and unfortunately did not help and let that uh, uh, movement brutally put down by the Mullah's regime in Iran. Well, I would take it back a little further. I would take it back to the period when the letter was written to the Bush, George W. Bush White House and was not right. responded to. Right, exactly. That, that was the, I think, the opening. That was, that's another. I when there was a different, a different leadership in Iran. Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. You know, a lot of us, we feel that the issue of Iran is another replacement for the old uh, Soviet Union. Everybody is benefiting from making Iran big. Iran has no power to do anything, and uh, I think it's just made big. And all those Arab countries, leaders that are not democratic, and they are, uh, you know, based basically forced on their population, they're using Iran in order to gain more help. Uh, you know, basically from U.S. to stay in power. Well, one more question. We, we do have to actually wrap up. The, the gentleman in the blue, the light blue shirt. Thank you. Thank you for taking my question. Uh, Turkey has been mentioned briefly several times, but very briefly. Um, so my question is to focus the panel's attention on Turkey a bit. And uh, my question is, uh, if you look at this month's uh, Commentary magazine, it has an excellent article about the rise of the Erdogan administration and the critical role that the uh, United Arab Emirates and the Gulf states, as well as Saudi Arabia, played by putting tens of billions of dollars behind uh, his party in surreptitious ways to bring in madrasas, to change the rules for the introduction to universities, to staff uh, various extreme uh, people, you know, throughout the administration. It sounds like the sort of a quiet Iranian Revolutionary Guard revolution taking place throughout the structure of Turkish society, which has changed Turkish society uh, perhaps permanently. So the, the notion of the Arab states, uh, our friends, the moderates, and we see a, a rising Turkey that supports Hamas, supports Iran, is it really um, so easy to thread the needle when it comes to Turkey and Iran and our U.S. policy in the Middle East? That's why I, th I think that the, this administration has um, neglected that very trend, but that more short-sighted was the European perspective in rejecting Turkey for reasons of immigration and, I think, race, 
bias. For religion. Well, but all of Turkey would have had a vote that would have exceeded Germany. There was a very strong feeling in very many European countries that this was a Christian continent, and what were we doing if we opened the doors to a Muslim country? But Turkey could have been brought into the European context. Turkey was so eager to join the EU. Yeah. And was a rebuffed. very different Turkey would have emerged. This, we were talking right. about a NATO member. There well, yeah. was no, it was not predetermined. Deal between Syria and Israel. Uh, Turkey was rejected uh, uh, from the track that was on that Paul Wolfowitz and many people, Richard Pearl and many people in the Bush administration worked very hard to try to get Europe to acquiesce to a track for Turkey. Turkey, in my view today, and Erdogan is the most interesting global leader today because he's actually a guy who says the status quo will no longer work for Turkey, and he's forcing strategic choices. And he's forcing, uh, to some degree, you know, when Joe Biden said that Barack Obama will be tested, uh, I think Joe Biden was absolutely right. We are being tested because there's a lot of doubt, but I think people are also testing Israel. There's, a, there's an absence of equilibrium in global affairs today, and there is a, a set of provocations that are out there trying to see where the various lines are. And Turkey is situating itself to be the, indis- the new indispensable player between East and West, mm-hmm. that you can't make your way in any of these. I mean, we're not, unless you think we're just going to you know, create a wall and have non-ending wars, which I don't think is an option for the United States, will become a fortress nation and withdraw if that, that's a sort. It's turning, it's made a strategic choice, and we're all trying to say, wow, this is dangerous, it's destabilizing, and it's creating very, very hard uh, realities for all of us because we don't have a strategy but it's to made deal with it. We're reactive, they're strategic. They've made a strategic choice having been rejected right. by the West. Right. And they were a, a very overt back channel with the Israelis, not only their military relationship with Israel, but the negotiating track, which was potentially very fruitful two years ago and now is not, for obvious reasons. We do have to wrap it up. Um, I wish this were a more positive session, but it's been provocative. So I want to thank everyone and thank all of you.